0: SECTION 12 OF HANDBOOK OF HOME RULE This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes. HANDBOOK OF HOME RULE BE IN ARTICLES ON THE IRISH QUESTION SECTION 12 the unionist position by canon mccall part two when the unionists begin if they ever do begin seriously to deliberate on the question of self-government for ireland they will find that they have only two practicable alternatives the maintenance of the present system or some scheme of home rule on the lines of mr gladstone's much misunderstood bill and the ablest men among the Unionists are beginning to perceive this. The spectator has, in a recent article, implored Mr. Chamberlain to desist from any further proposal in favor of self-government for Ireland, because the inevitable result would be to split up the Unionist party, and Mr. Chamberlain, as uh, we have seen, has accepted the advice another very able and very logical opponent of home rule has candidly avowed that the only alternative to home rule is the perpetuation of things as they are ireland he thinks possesses none of the conditions necessary for local self-government his own view therefore is that in ireland as in france An honest, centralized administration of impartial officials and not local self-government would best meet the real wants of the people. The name of self-government has a natural fascination for Englishmen, but a policy which cannot satisfy the wishes of home rulers, which may, it is likely enough, be of no benefit to Irish people, which will certainly weaken the government in its contest with lawlessness and oppression, is not a policy which obviously commends itself to English good sense. Well, may this distinguished supporter of things as they are declare, the maintenance of the Union on such terms must necessarily turn out as severe a task as ever taxed the nation's energies for to maintain the union with any good effect means that while refusing to accede to the wishes of millions of irishmen we must sedulously do justice to every fair demand from ireland must strenuously and without fear or favour assert the equal rights of landlords and tenants of protestants and catholics and must at the same time put down every outrage and reform every abuse. What hope is there of this? Our only guide to the probabilities of the future is our experience of the past, and what has that been in Ireland? In every year since the Legislative Union, there have been multitudes of men in England as upright, as enlightened, as well-intentioned towards Ireland as Professor Dicey and with better opportunities of translating their thoughts into acts yet what has been the result simomenlum requiris circumspice behold ireland at this moment and examine every year of its history since the union do the annals of any constitutional government in the world present so portentous a monument of parliament failure so vivid an example of a moral and material ruin paved with good intentions therein lies the pathos of it not from malice not from cruelty not from wanton justice not even from callous indifference to suffering and wrong does our misgovernment of ireland come if the evil had its roots in deliberate wrongdoing on the part of england it would probably have been cured a long time ago but each generation while freely confessing the sins of its fathers has protested its own innocence and boasted of its own achievements and then with a pharisaic sense of rectitude has complacently pointed to some inscrutable flaw in the irish character as the key to the irish problem the generation which passed the act of union oblivious of british pledges solemnly given and lightly broken wondered what had become of the prosperity and contentment which the promoters of the union had promised to ireland the next generation made vicarious penance and preferred the enactment of catholic emancipation to the alternative of civil war and then wondered in its turn that Ireland still remained unpacified. Then came a terrible famine, followed by evictions on a scale so vast and cruel that the late Sir Robert Peel declared that no parallel could be found for such a tale of inhumanity in the records of any country, civilized or barbarous. Another generation, plumbing itself on its enlightened views and kind intentions passed the encumbered estates act which delivered the irish tenants over to the tender mercies of speculators and money-lenders and then parliament for a time closed its eyes and ears and relied upon force alone to keep ireland quiet it rejected every suggestion of reform in the land laws and the greater minister, himself an Irish landlord, dismissed the whole subject in the flippant epigram that tenant right was landlord wrong. Since then, the Irish Church has been disestablished, and two land acts have been passed, yet we seem to be as far as ever from the pacification of Ireland. Surely it is time to inquire whether the evil is not inherent in our system of governing Ireland, and whether there is any other cure that which de Beaumont suggested, namely the destruction of the system. It is probable that there is not in all London a more humane or a more kind-hearted man than Lord Salisbury yet lord salisbury's government will do some harsh and inequitable things in ireland this winter just as liberal governments have done during their term in office the fault is not in the men but in the system which they have to administer i see no reason to doubt that sir m hicks Beach did the best he could under the circumstances but unfortunately bad is the best in a conversation which I had with Dr. Döllinger while he was in full communion with his church, I ventured to ask him whether he thought that a new pope, of liberal ideas, force of character, and commanding ability, would make any great difference in the papal system. No, he replied. The curial system is in the growth of centuries, and there can be no change of any consequence while it lasts. Many a pope has begun with brave projects of reform, but the struggle has been brief, and the end has been invariably the same. The pope has been forced to succumb. His entourage has been too much for him. He has found himself enclosed in a system which was too strong for him, wheel within wheel. And while the system lusts the most enlightened ideas and the best intentions are in the long run unavailing, the criticism applies mutatis mutandis to what may be called the curial system of Dublin Castle. It is a species of political ultramontanism, exercising supreme power behind the screen of an official infallibility on which there is practically no check, since Parliament has never hitherto refused to grant it any power which it demanded for enforcing its decrees. There is, moreover, another consideration which must convince any dispassionate mind which ponders it, that the British Parliament is incompetent to manage Irish affairs and must become increasingly incompetent year by year. In ordinary circumstances, Parliament sits about twenty seven weeks out of the fifty two. Five out of the twenty seven may be safely be subtracted for holidays, debates on the address and other debates apart from ordinary business. That leaves twenty two weeks and out of these two nights a week are at the disposal of the government, and three at the disposal of private members, leaving in all 44 days for the government and 66 for private members. Into those 44 nights, government must compress all its yearly program of legislation for the whole of the British Empire, from the settlement of some petty dispute about land in the Hebrides to some question of high policy in Egypt, India or other portions of the Queen's worldwide empire. And all this amidst endless distractions, enforced attendance through dreary debates and vapid talk and the running fire of cross-examination from any volunteer questioner out of the 600-odd members who sit outside the government circle. The consequence is that the Parliament is getting less able every year to overtake the mass of business which comes before it. Each year contributes its quota of inevitable arrears to the accumulated mass of previous sessions, and the process will go on multiplying in increasing ratio as the complex and multiform needs of modern life increase the large addition recently made to the electorate of the united kingdom is already forcing a crop of fresh subjects on the attention of parliament as well as presenting old ones from new point of view plans of devolution and grand committees will fail to cope with this evil To overcome it, we need some organic change in our present parliamentary system, some form of decentralization, which shall leave the imperial parliament supreme over all subordinate bodies, yet relegate to the historic and geographical divisions of the United Kingdom the management severally of their own local affairs. I should have better hope from governing Ireland, if it were possible, As we govern India, then from the present Unionist method of living things as they are, a viceroy surrounded by a council of trained officials and in semi-independence of Parliament would have settled the Irish question, land and all, long ago. But imagine India governed on the model of Ireland, the viceroy and the most important member of his government, changing with every change of administration at Westminster, his council and the official class in general consisting almost exclusively of native Muslims, deeply prejudiced by religious and traditional enmity against the great mass of the population, himself generally subordinate to the chief secretary, and exposed to the daily criticism of an ignorant parliament and to the determined hostility of 86 Hindus, holding seats in Parliament as the representatives of the vast majority of the people in India, and resenting bitterly the domination of the hereditary oppressor of their race. How long could the government of India be carried on under such conditions? Viewing it all round, then, it must be admitted that the problem of governing Ireland while leaving things as they are is a sufficiently formidable one. Read the remarkable admissions which the facts have forced from intelligent opponents of home rule like Mr. Dicey, and add to them all the other evils which are rooted in our existing system of Irish government, and then consider what hope there is, under things as they are, of sedulously doing justice to every demand from Ireland, strenuously and without fear, or favor asserting the equal rights of landlords and tenants protestants and catholics putting down every outrage and reforming every abuse and all the while refusing to accede to the wishes of millions of irishmen for fundamental change in a political arrangement that has for centuries produced all the mischief which the so-called unionist party are forced to admit and much more besides, while it has at the same time frustrated every serious endeavour to bring about the better state of things which they expect from what? From things as they are, as well expect grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. While the tree remains the same, no amount of weeding or pruning or manuring or change of culture will make it bring forth different fruit mr dicey among others has demolished what lord beaconsfield used to call the bit-by-bit reformers of irish government those who would administer homeopathic doses of local self-government but always under the protest that the supply was to stop short of what would satisfy the hunger of the patient but a continuance of things as they are gilded with a thin tissue of benevolent hopes and aspiration is scarcely more promising remedy for the ills of Ireland. Is it not time to try some new treatment, one which has been tried in similar cases and always with success? One only policy has never been tried in Ireland. Honest Home Rule. Certainly, if Home Rule is to be refused till all the profits of evil are refuted, Ireland must go without Home Rule forever if the sky fall we shall catch larks but he would be a foolish bird-catcher who waited for that contingency and not less foolish is the statesman who sits still till every conceivable objection to his policy has been mathematically refuted in advance and every wild prediction falsified by the event for that would ensure his never moving at all said it a proper enough attitude, perhaps, won the part of an heuristic philosopher speculating on politics in the silent shade of academic groves, but hardly suitable for a practical politician who has to take action on one of the most burning questions of our time. Human affairs are not governed by mathematical reasoning. You cannot demonstrate the precise results of any legislative measure beforehand as you can demonstrate the course of a planet in the solar system. Probability, as Bishop Butler says, is the guide of life, and an older philosopher than Butler has warned us that to demand demonstrative proof in the sphere of contingent matter is the same kind of absurdity as to demand probable reasoning in mathematics. You cannot confute a prophet before the event. You can only disbelieve him. The advocates of home rule believe that their policy would in general have an exactly contrary effect to that predicted by their opponents. In truth, every act of legislation is, before experience, amenable to such destructive criticism as these critics urge against home rule. I have not a doubt that they could have made out an answerable case against the great charter at Runnymede, and they would find it easy to prove on a priori grounds that the British constitution is one of the most absurd, mischievous, and unworkable instruments that ever issued from human brains or from the evolution of events. By their method of reasoning, the Great Charter, and other fundamental portions of the Constitution ought to have brought the government of the British Empire to a deadlock long time ago. Every suspension of the habeas corpus act, every act of attainder, every statute for summary trial and conviction before justices of the peace is a violation of the fundamental article of the Constitution, which requires that no man shall be imprisoned or otherwise punished except after lawful trial by his peers. Consider also the magazines of explosive materials which lie hidden in the constitutional prerogatives of the crown, if they could only be ignited by the match of an ingenious theorist. The crown, as Lord Sherbrooke once somewhat irreverently expressed it, can turn every cobbler in the land into a peer and could thus put an end as the duke of wellington declared to the constitution of this country the crown is not bound by act of parliament unless named therein by special and particular words the crown can make peace or war without consulting parliament can by secret treaties saddle the nation with the most perilous obligations and give away all such portions of the empire as do not rest on statute. The prerogative of mercy, too, would enable an eccentric sovereign, aided by an obsequious minister, to open the jails and let all the convicted criminals in the land loose up on society. But criticism, which proves too much in effect, proves nothing. In short, every stage in the progress of constitutional reform has, in matter of fact, been marked by similar predictions, falsified by results, and the prophets who condemn home rule have no better credentials, indeed much worse, for they proclaim the miserable failure of things as they are, whereas their predecessors were in their day satisfied with things as they were. It is high time, therefore, to call upon the opponents of Home Rule to tell us plainly where they stand. They claim a mandate from the country for their own policy. They neither asked nor received a mandate to support the system of government which prevailed in Ireland at the last election, and still less the policy of coercion which they have substituted for that system do they mean to go back or forward they cannot stand still they have already discovered that one act of repression leads to another and they will find ere long that they have no alternative except home rule or the suppression of parliamentary government in Ireland men may talk lightly of the ease with which 86 Irish members may be kept in order in Parliament They forget that the Irish people are behind the Irish members. How is Ireland to be governed on parliamentary principles if the voice of her representatives is to be forcibly silenced or disregarded? Could even Yorkshire or Lancashire be governed permanently in that way? Let it be observed that we have now reached this pass, namely, that the opponents of Home Rule are opposed to the Irish members not on any particular form of self-government for Ireland, but on any form. In other words, they resist the all-but-unanimous demand of Ireland for what Unionists of all parties declared a year ago to be reasonable demand. No candidate at the last election ventured to ask the suffrages of any constituency as a supporter of things as they are. Yet that is particularly the attitude now assumed by the ministerial party, both conservatives and liberal unionists. It is an attitude of which the country is getting wary, as the by-elections have shown. But the unionists, it must be admitted, are in a sore dilemma. Their strength, such as it is, lies in doing nothing for the reform of Irish government. Their bond of union consists of nothing else but opposition to Mr. Gladstone's policy. They dare not attempt to formulate any policy of their own, knowing well that they would go to pieces in the process. Their hope and speculation is that something may happen to remove Mr. Gladstone from the political arena before the next dissolution. But, after all, Mr. Gladstone did not create the Irish difficulty it preceded him and will survive him, unless it is settled to the satisfaction of the Irish people before his departure, and the difficulty of the final settlement will increase with every year of delay, nor will the difficulty be confined to Ireland. The Irish question is already reacting upon kindred, though not identical, problems in England and Scotland, And the longer it is kept open, so much the worse will it be for what are generally regarded as conservative interests. It is not moderate liberals or conservatives who are gaining ground by prolongation of the controversy, and the disappearance of Mr. Gladstone's from the scene would have the effect of removing from the forces of extreme radicalism a conservative influence which his political opponents will discover when it is too late to restore it. Their regret will then be as unavailing as the lament of William of Deloraine over his fallen foe. I'd give the lands of Deloraine, Dark Musgrave were alive again. The Irish landlords have already begun to realize the mistake they made, when they rejected mr gladstone's policy of home rule and land purchase it is the old story of sibyl's books no british government will ever again offer such terms to the irish landlords as they refuse to accept from mr gladstone on the other hand home rule is inevitable can any reflective person really suppose that the democracy of great britain Will consent to refuse to share with the Irish people the boon of self-government which will be offered to themselves next year any attempt to exclude the Irish from the benefits of such a scheme after all the promises of the last general election would almost certainly wreck the government for constituencies have ways and means to impressing their wills on their representatives in parliament even without a dissolution. If, on the other hand, Ireland should be included in a general scheme of local government, the question of who shall control the police will arise. In Great Britain, the police, of course, will be under local control. To refuse this to Ireland would be to offer a boon with a stigma attached to it. The Irish members agreed to let the control of the constabulary, remain under mr gladstone's scheme for some years in the hands of the british government but they would not agree to this while dublin castle ruled the country moreover the formidable difficulty suggested by lord salisbury and mr john Stuart mill would appear the moment men began seriously to consider the question of local government for ireland the government of dublin castle would have to go but something would have to be put in its place, and when that point has been reached, it will be probably seen that nothing much better or safer can be found than some plan on the main lines of Mr Gladstone's bill. End of section 12. Recording by Mike Botes.